We're kicking off a new series today called Who Are You? And I don't know about you, but when I saw that that was the title, all I could think of was the theme song from The Who on, on CSI. Like, is it, it's gonna be looping through your head now all day. I'd sing it for you, but, but no, I'm not. So anyway, but that's, that's what I kept thinking. Who are you? Who, who? Who, who? And so it's, it's who, is, who is God? Who is Jesus to us? And in light of that, who am I? Because who he is should have some direct bearing on who I am, my, my actions and my thoughts and how I live my life. It changes me. So, you know, when, when, when the Son of God came to earth as the Son of Man, it was not intended to be a one-time event that we would someday celebrate as Christmas. It was just one part in his unfolding plan for our lives. And it, it, our lives should look different because of it. So I remember, uh, I asked Jesus into my heart in fourth grade, and then I was baptized. I think it was the summer after sixth grade. Um, And I was very sincere about my faith. I didn't understand it all. I certainly haven't gotten it all right over the years, but I was very sincere about my faith at a young age. So I remember it was was the week after I was baptized. I'm the oldest of four, and uh, my sister is next to me, and we had some kind of a spat or a tiff just a couple days after being, I was baptized. And she looked at me with all the wisdom of a nine-year-old, and she said, I thought you were supposed to be different. (laughs) Oh, I was so mad. I was so mad at her. But I was mad because it stung, because she was right. She was right. Having Jesus in my heart and saying, I want to live life for you should have made me look different. And I had utterly failed in whatever context as a big sister that particular day. So if, if Jesus was really God and you've truly accepted him as Lord of your life, then your life can and should look different because of it. Different from who you were 10 years ago. Different from who you were two months ago. Maybe even different from who you were yesterday. He has that kind of power. It's a continual working out of our salvation with him. So, you know, there are a lot of names for Jesus in the Bible. And, and that could easily become confusing for us. You know, why, why do we need so many names to, to describe one person? But I would say it like this. Don't, don't let it freak you out, okay? I am, I am a daughter. I am a sister. I am a wife. I am a mother. I am a friend. I'm a young adult leader. I'm all of those things. They're just different facets of my personality, of my giftings. And so the same is true of Jesus. And we're, that's what we're gonna do in this series. We're gonna talk about four different parts of his character and his nature and, and what that says about us in light of it. So my sermon title today is All That, All That, and you're gonna have to stick around till the end of the sermon to find out where I came up with that title. I'll just leave that hanging there. So if you hang around church long enough, you hear a lot of big words, right? You hear words like atonement, sanctification, propitiation, reconciliation, and and they can be pretty daunting if you're not sure what they mean. Now, I was an English teacher. I wasn't born knowing what a prepositional phrase was, okay? I had to learn that, I had to learn it. Uh, Gary works in construction. He wasn't born knowing what a miter box was. All right, and so if you're sitting here today and and you're like, I don't actually, I don't really know what reconciliation means, like I should, because I've heard it, but I don't really get it, it, it's okay. We're we're all learning together, and honestly, studying for this sermon, I felt like I had a deeper revelation for myself personally of what reconciliation really means. And I wanna share that with you today, because 
I'm gonna talk to you today about Jesus as the reconciler. And I've asked the Lord to help me explain this in a fresh way so that those of you that have never heard it before, it makes sense to you. And those of you that have heard it for years, you hear it in a new way by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I've asked the Lord to do today. It's a monumental task and he's the only one, he's the only one that can pull that off. So what does it mean to reconcile? So first, my really, my first instinct is to think about reconciling my checkbook. I'm a words girl, I'm not a numbers girl. I hate doing it. I hate doing our banking and our billing. I hate reconciling the checkbook, but man, when it reconciles and everything lines up and then you hit the, the end on your, you know, the calculator app on your phone and, and, it, and you're like, it worked. It actually worked, the numbers line up. It's such a great feeling. Reconciliation is a great feeling. One of the primary definitions for reconciliation is to restore to friendship and harmony. We heard some great harmony up here on the worship team today. We also know what it sounds like when music does not harmonize, all right? So my dear grandfather died a couple of years ago. He was beloved, wonderful man of God, and it was a very large funeral because the family is large and he was well-beloved in the church. And at his graveside service, there were literally several hundred people there. And it was such a big crowd that the music started on the one side, but those of us on the other side couldn't really hear it. So some dear soul on our side of the tent picked up the slack and, and proclaimed herself the leader of the music on our side. And it was awful because we were in a whole different key than the people on the other side of the tent and we were a whole measure behind where they were. And, and here is this solemn occasion, we're all grieving. And it was actually it was funny, we were all trying not to laugh because it was just that awful. It was that hard on the ears, all right? So we know what harmony sounds like. We know what it feels like. My parents, my, my dad was a tenor and my mom was an alto. I grew up knowing like this, this is what harmony sounds like. This is what it sounds like. So another definition for reconciliation is a reestablishment of relationship after conflict. So I flashed back to uh, stories Gary and I have told each other from when we were little. So he's in the middle between two sisters, rough spot for a, a little brother to be. And so if he and one of his sisters got into a fight, his mom would make them sit and hold hands. All right, that was her strategy. Now, my mom, when my sister and I would have an argument, she, now this is gonna sound ridiculous to you, but it was really effective, and I'll tell you why in a minute. She would make us kiss 10 times. Here's what would happen. We would get to the second kiss, and we would be dissolving in laughter, and we would just be cracking up, and all of a sudden, the fight was over. We were reconciled. We never even got to the 10th kiss, I mean, because we were just laughing too hard. It was a brilliant strategy on my mother's part, and it worked every single time. So. This makes sense to us, reconciling relationships here on earth. We understand that, but it, it, it's a little harder for us to grasp it when we think about being reconciled to God because human reconciliation happens after a conflict. What conflict do we have with God? Well, think back to the Garden of Eden. I want you to think back to Adam and Eve. Um, you know, originally they lived in the garden with God in perfect harmony. And that's, that is, that's really difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we've not quite experienced it like they did. But that's, there was no conflict, no division between them and God in the early days of the garden before they sinned. And then Satan shows up and he tempts Eve and then she tempts Adam and they eat the fruit. The Lord says, you can eat anything you want from any of the trees except for this one and they decide they're gonna do it anyway. And so I think we have this mistaken notion that all the bad things we've done, all the bad things that have happened to us are Eve's fault. How many of you have ever like sort of hated on Eve a little bit? 
Like, my life would look a whole lot different if she had never taken that bite, all right? Okay, so moment of truth. I want you to raise your hand if you have ever listened to a lie of the enemy. Every hand should be up, all right. Second question, how many of you have ever distinctly done something God told you not to do? Hands up, all right. It's not Eve's fault. (laughs) It's not Eve's fault. It's my fault and it's your fault. We're all in the same boat here. And so, uh, it's, I think we need to understand the gravity of our sin, and this is always the delicate balance in the church between grace and truth, but I think sometimes we, we err so far inside the grace that we treat sin like, oh, it's like I just poured a little bit too much milk in my cereal, you know? It's a lot more serious than that. It's a lot more serious than that. And here's why. Isaiah 59, two says this, your sin, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he's turned away and will not listen anymore. And so our sins, your sins, my sins, Eve's sins, they cut us off. They separated us from that intimate relationship with God. And it's easy for us to say, like, why does God hate sin so much? Why does he even care? Why don't I get to just live my life the way I want? Why should he have any say in it? Well, first of all, he created you. So that, that is enough of an answer right there. But let's take it a little further. I want you to think about something that repulses you. I hate mayonnaise. I hate the look of it, I hate the smell of it. Like if I'm cleaning off dishes and a little gets on my hand, I'm like, oh, like I, and I have to wash it immediately. I just find it repulsive. I want you to understand, God is not repulsed by you, but he is repulsed by your sin because it is the opposite of everything he is. He is pure, he's holy, he's righteous, he's kind. And our sin is the opposite of that. Another reason is sin is the work of the devil. And the devil is God's enemy. And so the devil constantly tries to get at us so he can get at God. I don't wanna be part of that. I don't wanna be part of that plan. Another reason God hates sin is he knows it enslaves us and it traps us and it makes us absolutely miserable. And he loves us and he doesn't wanna see us in that place. Fourth reason why he hates sin, it separates us from him. He doesn't wanna be apart from us. All right, so my oldest daughter is married, and our second daughter, my, our oldest daughter's married, let me say that, Gary's and mine, and our second daughter's in college. Thanksgiving was so much fun, because we were all together again. I, it's good for them to go and grow up, but it's like, oh, I like when we're back together again. It feels good to be family. And that's the way God feels too, and I think, We struggle to understand reconciliation with God because we compare it to earthly reconciliation. We know that we've not done it perfectly here on earth, so it's hard to imagine that it could be done perfectly at all. But we're comparing reconciliation between two imperfect humans to reconciliation between us and a perfect God. And that's what makes the difference. If reconciliation depended solely on us, we would be in a whole lot of trouble. Thankfully, it doesn't. And I I want you to hear this next line. If you hear nothing else I say today, I want you to hear this. Reconciliation does not happen because we decide not to reject God. It happens because God decided not to reject us. That's the kicker. That's what reconciliation is. He could, you know. He could reject us. He'd had every right to. I mean, that's what we do sometimes. We reject people. 
because they hurt us, because they disappoint us. But somehow we have this twisted notion that we're the ones that bring about reconciliation with God. So I had major surgery this fall, and, and I'll be honest with you, the first three weeks, I checked out. I literally wasn't allowed to do hardly anything, so in all fairness, it wasn't like I could go set the world on fire. I got up and had my devotions every day, and then I pretty much glutted on Netflix the rest of the day. And I'm telling you, by the end of three weeks, I was so spiritually dead, I was like, am I even a Christian? Like, it was like, I was like, God was so far away. Let me just tell you something. He, that wasn't his fault. That wasn't his fault. That was my fault, all right? He hadn't changed or moved. His love for me was secure. I was the one that said, I'm just gonna take a break here. And boy, did I regret it. Did I pay for it? Here's the thing, too. We try to solidify reconciliation with our good works and our good deeds. It's like, just to make sure that I'm actually saved, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna have some quiet time with the Lord. Maybe I'll change the way I dress, change the way I talk. Maybe I'll do some good deeds. As if by doing those things, we can make our reconciliation sure. We can make it solid. And I'm telling you, you can't do a thing to change what Christ did there on the cross. When he said, it is finished, this is what he meant. It's done, it's a done deal. I have done everything that needs to happen for you to be reconciled to me and there's nothing you can do to add to it. Now, if that's hard for you to grasp, I want you to think about marriage for a minute. Gary and I will celebrate our 31st anniversary on the 17th of this month. Yeah, yes. So, I am not more married to Gary now than I was 31 years ago. All right, on the days that I am selfish and grouchy, we are not less married. On the days where I am an awesome wife and I cook his favorite meals and I'm cheerful and friendly, we are not more married, all right? I can't do anything in, in regards to that, to, to do anything about, to, to take away from the commitment we made 31 years ago. It is solid and it is sure. This is what makes Christianity different from other religions. So for, for any of you that's there, there's, you're sitting there and you're thinking, surely there are other religions that would be just as good as Christianity. Here's the difference, and this should clinch it for you if nothing else does. All the other religions are about the poor pitiful people knocking themselves out to try to win the favor of, of a deity or a God that they may have wounded. The difference with Christianity is God was the initiator. He's like, I'm coming after you. The Bible says that, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He picked us. That's what sets Christianity apart from other religions and thank God for it. It's a significant twist and when you begin to understand that, it begins to change everything about how you wanna live this life. And honestly, here's the thing, when you start to understand all that God's done and that you can't do anything to add to it, our response should be one of just pure gratitude. I am so grateful, I am so humbled. I want to please you, I want to serve you. I want to make you look good here on earth, God. It becomes just the, the cry of our heart, like I couldn't possibly pay you back, but I love you so much, God, that I, I, I wanna do everything I can to please you, to please you. So I wanna read a passage that, that really tells us, like, what's our response now? Knowing this and understanding this about reconciliation, what should be our response as a result? 
I just discovered the Passion Translation this week. I'm a little behind the times, but oh my goodness, changed my life. I, don't, I couldn't even tell you how many times I read this passage, and every single time it was like, Lord, I could just lay on the floor and weep. It is just that beautiful. So, Passion Translation, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. For it is Christ's love that fuels our passion and motivates us because we are absolutely convinced that he's given his life for all of us. This means all died with him so that those who live should no longer live self-absorbed lives, but lives that are poured out for him, the one who died for us and now lives again. So then from now on, we have a new perspective that refuses to evaluate people merely by their outward appearances. For that's how we once viewed the anointed one, but no longer do we see him with limited human insight. Now if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he's become an entirely new creation. All that's related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. And God has made all things new and reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciling others to God. In other words, it was through the anointed one that God was shepherding the world, not even keeping record of their transgressions, and that he has entrusted to us the ministry of opening the door of reconciliation to God. We are ambassadors of the anointed one who carry the message of Christ to the world as though God were tenderly pleading with them directly through our lips. As though, uh, so we tenderly plead with you on Christ's behalf, turn back to God and be reconciled to him. For God made the only one who did not know sin to become sin for us, so that we who did not know righteousness might become the righteousness of God through our union with him. Amen, hallelujah. We could just close shop right now, except I have more things to say. I love that, verse 14. Now we understand everything he's done for us and it fuels our passion and it motivates us. Everything we do from the moment we open our eyes should be motivated by that. That should be our driving passion every day. It says that we are to be his ambassadors. What is an ambassador? It is a representative. An ambassador carries a message on behalf of someone else. It's like when my kids were little and I would say to one of them, go call your sister for dinner. They acted as my messenger. They carried my message to their sister. That's our job. It's not just our job, it's our responsibility and it's our privilege. It's our privilege to get to do that, to explain this to people. So. How exactly do we do that? Because going up to someone, this is not a great pickup line. Like, hey, you wanna learn about reconciliation? It's not. It's not a great way to start a friendship. It, we, we don't start there. So what does it look like? I, I think there, there are many things that happen when we're reconciled with God, but I'm gonna focus on three of them today. Sort of three levels of what God does for us and in us and through us as a result of being reconciled to him. I used to hate when people would say, if Jesus never did anything else for you but die on the cross, that would be enough. And I would think, 
does that mean I can't ask for anything else? Like I should just spend the rest of my life being grateful for that? I can't ever say, please heal me, please provide for me. But you know what? When we look at what reconciliation really means, I think actually it is enough. It is enough. It's the answer to everything that's wrong with us and wrong with the world. And one of the root words for reconciliation is change. I love that. It comes out of a root word for change. And so I wanna talk to you quickly today about three things that change when we say to God, ah, I appreciate that you died on the cross for me so I could be reconciled to you, I'm in. I'm in, I want this. There are three different levels. There's a change in your destiny, there's a change in your relationship, and there's a change in your status. I wanna talk about them today. Change in your destiny. You go from being doomed to being saved. Doomed to being saved. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death. I mean, you get a wage for your work, the wage for your work is a paycheck, but the wages for sin is death. That's, I don't think we really understand that. Like all the, all the stuff I've done, I deserve to die for it. I deserve to die for my sins. And this includes all sin. I wanna make this really clear. Like in the Old Testament, you could be put to death for committing adultery. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you know what? I'm not just concerned about what you're doing out there. I'm concerned about what's going on in here. So even if you look at a woman lustfully, that's a sin. Now listen, if the punishment for wrong thoughts is death, we are all in trouble. We are all in trouble. I don't know that I committed any grievous outward sins this week, but I know, I know I had sinful thoughts this week. No question about it. No question about it. And this is not just about adultery, this is all sins. God's not just concerned about our actions, how we act out our sin, he's concerned about our attitudes. He's concerned about our sin nature, the sin nature that's inside of us. When Jesus died on the cross, it's, he really just said, listen, you deserve to die for all that, but I'm gonna do it instead. And you don't have to. I was listening to a song this week from Cochran and Company, I just had them on you know, repeat over and over. And one song said, I'd still be a dead man if there hadn't been a grave. I'd still be a dead man if there hadn't been a grave. Romans 2, 4 says this, I always love this verse. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. What did he do that was kind? Death seems cruel, right? Jesus died. But Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say, as soon as we got our act together, he decided to die for us. He died for us before we'd even committed all of our sins. Here's my question, why do we send the opposite message to the world? If it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, why do we think it'll be the meanness of us that'll lead the world to repentance? I see stuff on Facebook, guys, and I've unfollowed some people that I know love Jesus, but I'll tell you what, I just can't read the things they say anymore because it's so cruel and harsh and it doesn't represent the Father's heart at all. Kindness and grace are awkward. Here, here's the thing, isn't it easier to just be mad at someone? It's just kind of easier to like, I it's kind of feels good, hold a grudge be irritated, just be a little angry, maybe gossip a little. It feels better. We don't know what to do with grace. So I had an, an incident last week that just drove this home and I was like, shoot, I'm gonna have to share this in the sermon. So 
You know how, uh, so I had some skin cancer on my face like a year and a half ago, and so now I have to see the dermatologist once a year, and they do a full body check and make sure there's no skin cancer anywhere else. So you, you, know, you schedule that like a year in advance, right? Not having a clue what you're gonna do a year from now. And so the appointment was coming up, and like a week before, I'm like, oh, this isn't gonna work. I, I now have a job, and so I can't make that appointment. So my dermatologist's office, and they're great, I wanna say that, fabulous, fabulous people. They go over and above for me but um, they're really hard to get a hold of. They keep their overhead low, so you rarely get a person, you always get voicemail. So I called in plenty of time, and I said, I'm gonna have to change my appointment next week, um, and so, you know, thank you, and we'll be in touch. And so we played phone tag, which is what you usually do with them, and so finally we got to talk. This was like two weeks later. We finally connected on the phone. And um, I said, yes, you know, I'd like to schedule my appointment. She said, great, and she said, you'll have to pay the $60 no-show fee first. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? I said, and I was, I was very, very nice because they're very nice people. They're, they're not trying to be jerks. It felt that way, but they weren't. Um, I said, well, what do you mean? I, I called in, like I, I, I gave you a whole week's notice. And she said, well, she said, um, you just said you needed to change the appointment. You didn't say you needed to cancel it. And I said, so you're telling me because of a linguistic error, because I said change instead of cancel, I now owe you $60, I said, I'm really sorry. I said, I, I thought I did everything that I needed to do. Um, I said, I, I, I'm not gonna be able to reschedule with you right now. I said, I'm, I'm gonna have to think about this. I, I may need to go to another practice. So I hung up the phone and, and toward the end of the conversation, you, maybe guys don't know about this, but girls do. My voice was starting to get quavery and I was starting to feel really stupid because I felt like I was on the verge of tears because I really felt like I was innocent. But technically I was wrong. I, I didn't say cancel, I said change. So it's like 10 minutes later and my phone rings and I go over and I look and I'm like, oh, it's the dermatologist's office. I don't want to talk to them. My voice is still quavery, I'm humiliated and I didn't pick it up, I left it go to voicemail. So it was like half an hour later, I finally got the courage to listen to the voicemail. And they said, hi, I, I ran the situation by the doctor and she said she's happy to waive the fee and you can call back and make an appointment. I still, it took me two days to call them back because I was just, I don't know what to do with grace. I don't know, I, I just was like embarrassed by it, you know? I just was, we don't know what to do with kindness. I was just so humbled by it. And I think this is what happens with God, but I don't know what to do with this. Like, you're just kind and you're good and you're not making me pay for my sins and it would just be easier. It would just feel easier and better to just be angry and offended, you know? But grace, this is what we can offer the world. We can offer them that kind of grace. I mean, the Bible talks about what God does with our sins, all right? I didn't sin by saying can, uh, cha cancel instead of, not saying change instead of cancel, but I still technically made a mistake there. So in Psalms, it says, he removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Great visual, right? In Micah 7, he says, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea, and I always picture them down there with like the ruins of the Titanic. Okay, which always bothers me a little bit because I'm like, they found the ruins of the Titanic, so couldn't they go down there and find my sins? Like, that's not helpful to me. That's not helpful to me. But one day the Lord showed me this verse in Isaiah 38:17, and it changed my life. This is Hezekiah talking to the Lord, and he says, in your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. I love that. What happens? If I take this water bottle and I put it behind my back, I'm not looking at it. And if you're looking at me, you can't see it either. It doesn't mean it's not there. 
It just means it's not the focus. It's not the focus. It's not what God's focused on and it's not what he wants you to be focused on. He put your sin behind his back. I love that. So you keep your eye on him, you don't have to keep looking at your sin. It's hidden, it's hidden in Christ. And I think this is what we can offer the world. Sure, there are people out there who are sinning, as we are, but we can say to them, look, God put your sins behind your back. I'm not gonna focus on your sin, I wanna focus on you. I wanna focus on you and making sure you are reconciled to God. That's the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given. Now, God could have stopped there. He could have just changed our destiny, said, you're not going to hell. We say, wahoo, and and it's over. But he says, I'm gonna take it a step further. I'm gonna change your relationship to me. You're gonna go from my enemy to my friend. Now, there's a new TV show out. I haven't watched it. It's called God Friended Me. And I, I just was curious, so I went online to read a little description. And it says it's about an atheist who gets a friend request from God on social media. And as a result, it says he becomes an agent of change in the lives of those around him. I'm like, what? Like the world understands this better than we do. Like when we become a friend of God, we're an agent of change in the lives around us. And I thought about, remember when you were in elementary school and you played blob tag? And it started with one person who was it, and then you would go tag another person, then you'd hold hands, and then you'd tag more people, and you would just become this blob. You would morph into a blob, and you would... I think, I think God wants us to play a little bit of spiritual blob tag. You know? We just go out and we just, we just bring them in. Just come in. Come into our blob. You know? Our life wave blob. I don't know. There's probably a better word for that. James 4.4 says this. You unfaithful people, don't you know that love for this evil world is hatred toward God? Whoever wants to be a friend of this world is an enemy of God. Do you ever have two friends? who You were friends with both of them, but they didn't like each other. It's a horrible place to be caught in the middle. And you can't be with both of them at the same time, right? Same deal here. You can't be in both places at the same time. You can't be partaking in the world and partaking in Christ at the same time. It's a little bit like this. So I had thyroid cancer in 2002. And so as a result, my thyroid was removed and I have to take a thyroid replacement hormone, which keeps me alive and kicking. And here's the thing about that medication. I can't combine it with other stuff. I'm not allowed to eat anything for an hour in the morning after I take that pill. So sleeping in does not benefit me because if you sleep in and then you have to wait another hour, it's, it's like lunchtime, you know, till you can eat. So I also can't mix other medications with it because what happens is they, not just medications, but like supplements or vitamins because they will cancel out the effectiveness of the thyroid pill. And so that's what happens. You know, you're like, I'm gonna take my little dose of Jesus today, but then you go out and you invite in as much of the world as you can and it just, it cancels out our effectiveness for Christ. It cancels it out. I think a lot of us are trying to straddle the fence. How much of the world can I have and still be a Christian? Instead of how much of Christ can I have? How much? Because it's endless. It's endless. John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. What's a friend? It's someone you trust with the secrets of your heart. I have people like that. I'm so grateful for them. So grateful for them. And that's, God wants to entrust the secrets of his heart to you. 
I mean, that is mind-blowing to me, that he actually wants to share his thoughts with me. Psalm 25, 14, I've always loved this verse, and again, the Passion Translation said it so beautifully. There's a private place reserved for the lovers of God where they sit near him and receive the revelation secrets of his promises. Oh, you better believe I wanna be in that private place reserved for lovers of God because I wanna hear his whispers. I wanna hear the secrets of his heart. We talk about doing life together here at church. Well, we can do life together with God. Moses, it says, God spoke to him face to face as with a friend. We can do that too, and it's our ministry to the world. You know, it's the holidays. I don't wanna step on any toes here, but some of you need to to represent Christ as a friend to your family. (laughs) Because if, you know, do they cringe when you show up at the family dinner? because it's our job to to represent Christ, to be his ambassador at those holiday dinners too. Third change in our status, we go from orphan to adopted. Just like people update their status on Facebook when they graduate or get a job or they get engaged or married, God updated our status and he said, you're no longer orphans, you're adopted as my kids. I don't know what it's like to be adopted, but I do know what it's like to be well-loved by my family. My dad did not have a great family growing up, and so his only goal was to have his own family that he could love, and he did that well. God didn't have to adopt you, you know. He could have kept you in the friend zone, but he didn't. He said, I want more. I want you to be my child. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. I love that he used exclamation points. You don't see that much in the Bible. It just feels like kind of sixth grade-ish, but I love it. I love it. Lavish. It doesn't say he gave his love. He lavished it. It was over the top. It was excessive. It was beyond what is necessary. I I have limited resources, unlike God, but I do my best to lavish my love on my kids. So Hannah was supposed to come home from college on Monday uh, for Thanksgiving break, and she called us Saturday night while we were at a Thanksgiving dinner, and she said, I'm sick, I think I have the flu, I don't feel safe to drive home, can you come get me? We dropped everything. We ran out and got her. Our daughter Molly and her husband Dusty brought brought Hannah's car home. I mean, this week was back rubs and medication and and chats, and you know, I, I lavished my love on her to the best of my limited human ability this week. That's what God wants to do for us. And when you're adopted into a family, you get to inherit the family heirlooms. So there's this coverlet that's been passed down in our family on my mom's side. I think I will be the sixth person to receive it. It goes to the oldest daughter of the next person in line. And so I will be next. Like, I I cherish that. I'm next in line. You're next in line to inherit Everything God has and everything he is. Everything he has, peace, love, joy, protection, provision, the Holy Spirit, everything he has, you are in line to receive that, to inherit that as his child. And everything he is becomes yours as well. I had a student years ago, his name was Chris, and I don't know how to explain it. He had this distinctive walk. It was sort of like, and I don't say this in a demeaning way, he looked like he just got off a horse. Like he kind of loped down the hall. 
And I, I just kind of smiled, he was, he was a precious kid, but I remember when parent-teacher conferences came around and I was standing in the doorway ready to greet the next parents and I looked down the hall and I see this man and woman coming, I hadn't met his parents before, and here this man comes walking down the hall loping like he just got off a horse. And I thought, huh, that's Chris's dad. Now here's, here's the kicker, he had a younger brother who walked the same way and I found out later the younger brother was adopted. He was adopted and he walked just like his dad. Just like his dad. You, you get to look just like your dad too. We're all adopted and we get to look just like him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I ask you to stand. I told you I'd, I'd tell you how I got the sermon title, all that. One day I was babysitting Edison Hoover, Ed and Hannah's little guy. And um, he, was, he was in this phase of pretending he was animals. And so we'd turn the page and it would be a zebra and he'd say, I'm that. And then he would make a zebra noise, whatever zebras say. Turn the page, it'd be a dog. He'd say, I'm that. And then he'd pretend he was a dog. So we got to the end of this book and here are all the animals from the whole book on the same page. And I saw his little eyes like darting just for like a split second. He didn't know what to do. And then he goes, I'm all that. I'm all that. You are all that because he is all that. Oh, such good stuff. You are, you are saved, you are his friend, and you have been adopted as his child. You are all that. Every single person in this room, no matter what. I'd ask you to close your eyes. You know, I read online this week that in Australia, they instituted something in the 90s where on May 26th, they have National Sorry Day. And then it follows with a week, National Reconciliation Week, and it's to try and mend relationships between the Aboriginals and the natives and the other Australians. I think some of us in this room need to have a National Sorry Day today. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I, I need you and I want you. I want you to be Lord of my life. I wanna be all that because you're all that. And if you're here today and you have, you have never said this before, all eyes closed, this is between you and God. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand. For the first time today, you're saying, I wanna be all that. I wanna be all that. Would you raise your hand just so we can pray with you? I'm not gonna call you out. Thank you. Anybody else? Bless you. Thank you. Some of you are in this room and you, you know Jesus, but you've been trying to add your two cents to what he did on the cross. And some of you have been trying to be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time, and it is not working for you. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I just need, I need National Reconciliation Week. I wanna come back to that place where I'm like, yep, I've been reconciled to God. If that's you today, would you raise your hand? I just wanna pray with you. Thank you. All right, let's just all pray together. Just repeat after me. God, today I choose to make you Lord of my life. I'm sorry for all the ways I've sinned. And I gratefully receive the reconciliation you died for. 
thank you that I'm saved, that I'm your friend, and that I've been adopted into your family. I want to live a life that's worthy of the call I've received. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for those who raised their hands today.